All right, with that, I'm gonna invite Pastor Landon up. We're diving into a new series this morning called Erasing God. This is gonna be good. Last gathering, he said, I'm gonna invite Mr. Landon. He got a little confused. I felt a little odd, like I was gonna go teach one of the, the kids' classrooms back there, but thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to start a uh, new series, as Jeremy mentioned, called Erasing God. And that sounds kind of weird. We still believe in God. So I'll explain what that actually means here in uh, just a moment. Uh, before that, just so you know, one of our chairs broke again last service, which is less than ideal. Uh, and we talked about ordering new chairs. So we're still working on that. We have one in the back that is being tested. But as you can maybe imagine right now with kind of how the economy is functioning and manufacturing and shipping kind of on a global and domestic uh, perspective, we don't know how long it's going to take. Every company we talk to gives us a different answer. So that is a work in progress. It's coming. Sit gently on your chairs until that time. <laughs> uh, with that said, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, and then we'll also spend some time in Luke chapter 4 uh, this morning. Again, our series is called Erasing God, and the, the concept here is this. There are things that are true about who God is, and there's also a reality of who God is not. And sometimes we mix those two and we get them confused. Sometimes we think things that are not true of God have actually become true. And maybe even unknowingly, they become this foundational part of our lives and influence our behavior and how we relate to God. There's been plenty of series and books and articles and sermons on the attributes of God. And we talk about uh, characteristics that are true of God. This is kind of like that, but from a, a different perspective. There's actually a need sometimes to recognize the attributes we have attributed to God that actually should not be. They're not true. They're not who he really is, and they need to be erased. The scriptures actually talk about this a fair amount, uh, but there's also medical and scientific perspective to how important it is to unlearn things before we put new learning on it. It's often referred to as neuroplasticity. You could define it this way in a bunch of different medical journals. It's the ability of the brain to form new connections and pathways and to change how its circuits are wired, especially in relation to personal experiences and learning. And that applies to our faith, to our relationship with God just as much on a, a scale from very abusive, horrendous experiences or relationships that are very clearly influential in our lives to the simplicity of just familial and cultural values over days that turn into weeks and months and years that shape how we think about life and people and God. We've been influenced by, by all kinds of things. Uh, and how we understand who God is. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but along with this neuroplasticity that happens in our minds, there's this map making. There's ways, patterns we've formed where we can't even help it, but we go, this is who God is, and perhaps it's not accurate. That's where this erasing God perspective comes in. 
Kurt Thompson is a, a doctor and psychologist, and from a Christian perspective, uh, talking about this neuroplasticity, he writes this, if I learn a new thing, if I put a new practice into a disciplined place, all of those things require the redirection of neurons to do things that they weren't doing before. So the reality is this, Satan is working actively to distort who we believe God is. And there's sometimes some things we need to erase that we've begun to believe as truth. I remember when I was uh, about seven years old, uh, I spent a lot of time with my Nana. She's a wonderful, godly woman, and I have a lot of really great memories with her growing up, playing cards, going on rides, doing all kinds of things. And one day, she was going to take me to see a, a movie. So I was excited to get popcorn and candy and whatever else and, and go see this movie and enjoy this time with my, my Nana. And so I sat down to watch the movie, and it was one of the most horrendous, horrific experiences I've ever had in my life to this day still. I'm terrified of any movies with animals in it. Uh, it was the, the movie My Dog Skip. And uh, my Nana's a wonderful woman, but she made a horrendous mistake that day <laughs> taking me to this movie. Now, what I'm about to say may or may not be true because in my seven-year-old mind and its ability to mind map, right, and kind of create these circuits, I've kind of blocked out the memory of what actually happened in this movie because more than anything, there's a sound that I remember from this movie. And from what I remember, there's a scene where there's this dog named Skip, and he's near a shed, uh, a tool shed. I don't, can't remember. It's a creepy shed. If he's inside of the shed or outside of the shed at night. But he's with the two bad guys in the movie. And what I remember is this horrendous sound. It's one of the worst sounds in all of the world. It's a dog yelping. That terrible, screeching yelp of a dog being hurt. And the dog was yelping as he was being uh, hit with the shovel by the two bad guys. And it's this horrendous sound. And I, I still haven't fully recovered, Nana. So, well, I'm, I'm still working through it. I started imagining, though, what if Skip was this real dog and that had actually happened, but then Skip was adopted into a new, wonderful family. And he was adopted by a guy named Doug and taken away. And Doug never knew anything about the tool shed and the shovel and the yelping. And for seven whole years, Doug and this dog, Skip, have this incredible relationship. Every morning, Doug pulls out the organic, fancy dog food and puts it in a bowl and then gives uh, Skip treats and takes Skip on daily walks and has provided this safe, large, fenced-in backyard for Skip to play in. And seven years go by, and Doug and Skip have this wonderful relationship. It seems as if... What happened seven years ago is no longer relevant. It's not going to be formational and influencing the relationship that Doug and Skip have. But then one day, Doug decides that the backyard needs some more trees. And so he goes to plant a tree, and of course, he needs a shovel to dig a hole for that tree. And Doug starts to dig with the shovel, and Skip is in the backyard, and he, he calls Skip over, but Skip won't come. And so he has the shovel, and he carries it with him, and he walks over to Skip, and Skip the dog starts yelping and cowering, and eventually he just runs away from Doug. And so Doug now lets go of the shovel, and he goes to pursue Skip, but Skip continues to yelp and cower and run from Doug. Now, Doug had absolutely nothing 
to do with that moment of abuse with the shovel by the shed. But it doesn't matter. Little Skip, the dog, even after seven years, he can't disassociate what happened with the shovel even to his new good owner. So what he's now done is attribute things that are not true of Doug to Doug. And until there's some work done to, to recircuit and remap what is going on in Little Skip's dog mind, though he might intellectually know that these are not true attributes of Doug, it doesn't matter. Because often, when it comes to relationships, what we feel overpowers what we know to be true. And if we don't do the work to erase things that are not true of God from our mental maps, it doesn't matter how many series there are on the attributes of God. It doesn't matter how many times I can meaningfully try my best to sing those words, you are good, you are good, you are good. It won't matter until the Spirit works and heals and helps us erase things that aren't true before we replace them with what is true. It's the same in our relationship with God. Based on your life, your experiences, again, on the scale from abuse, which is extremely influential, all the way to just familial and cultural values. That, that could be as simple as if you grew up in a religious family and there were a lot of rules, well, maybe over time, what's been formulated in your mind is that God doesn't love you unless you keep all the rules. And if you make a mistake, you've now moved yourself outside of the circle of his love. Or maybe it's that if you do make a mistake, it's on you to make up for that mistake before God will love you again. It could be subtle, but it can happen. Maybe you grew up in a, a high-achieving, successful family, and so now you believe that you need to be high-achieving and successful for God, for God to love you. It could be a variety of different things, again, on this pretty wide spectrum and scale of experiences and cultural familial values that have begun to impact your life. That's what we're going to look at through this series. Today, specifically, I hope to cover, and hopefully God can lead us to, to three different things. Number one is really simple, but really important, just awareness. I hope that we can gain awareness that Satan is actively seeking to distort who God is in your mind. And if he changes who you believe God to be and causes you to assign attributes to God that are not actually true of God, it's going to change how you relate to God, and therefore everything in your life. So today, the, the number one priority is just we gain awareness that Satan is doing this and of some of the specifics of his strategy and tactics. Number two, I actually have nothing to do with, only you can uh, participate in this. I hope we gain awareness of maybe some of the specifics in your personal life of the attributes you're assigning to God that are not actually true of God. And I don't know everyone's story, so I can't tell you what those are. But hopefully through this, this practice and awareness that Satan is indeed seeking to distort who we understand God to be, as you reflect and compare on your personal experiences, you can start to go, oh, maybe that's not true of God. Maybe that's a feeling I have that is not uh, true of who he is. And then lastly, and this is most important, we're going to recognize that as we do this work to reflect on our past, we're not actually the ones that have the most important job to do. The Spirit will guide us. The Spirit will erase what needs to erase and replace it with an accurate understanding and connect us uh, relationally to God in that 
midst. And so those are the, the three things we hope to achieve. I, I think we need to start by just diving into the, the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, as I mentioned, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I apparently don't know where that is in the Bible, so give me a second here. 2 Corinthians, and it's not chapter 5. Don't turn there. Matter of fact, I wouldn't listen to anything I say today. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is what I will be reading from. And we'll start in verse 1. Uh, a little context, because sometimes we uh, lose sight of what the scriptures are simply saying. This is just a normal guy named Paul that's actually met Jesus and is walking with him and believes he is Savior and King, writing to a normal group of people in a normal city like us. It's just called Corinth. Uh, he's writing to them because of some of the issues they're facing. Listen to what uh, Paul says. He says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband, to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, the, the scriptures, that, that word cunning means wise. I've said this before, but it always blows my mind. The, the Bible itself describes Satan as wise. As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, listen to that again. It's kind of a weird phrase. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, there's not two people named Jesus that we're describing. There's just one Jesus. But what Paul is describing is a situation where we believe Jesus is actually someone other than he, who he is. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, listen to these words, you put up with it splendidly. Paul's not saying, hey, be careful, be on guard, because people are going to portray God in all kinds of other ways. Know that and be aware. That's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying is you have grasped things. You've grabbed a hold of them and taken them as truth when they are not true. And you invite it, you welcome it, and you go, oh, here is another Jesus. And that's going to be devastating. That's going to impact how we follow Jesus, how we behave, how we relate to him and others. The, the scriptures are, are filled with uh, commands and advice to not be deceived. It's about a variety of different things, but I want to uh, read a few of these uh, to you. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself says, watch out that no one deceives you. In 1 Corinthians, so Paul's first letter to the same church in Corinth, he says, do not be deceived. First, uh, John in 1 John says, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. A few more examples. Uh, in Colossians, Paul writes to a different church, different set of circumstances, different cultural realities, but the same guy, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church in Colossae, and he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In 2 Timothy, Paul's writing a letter to one person, not a church, not a group of people, but one, and he says, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then finally, in the same letter, Paul says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. The scriptures take Satan seriously. 
Do you take the scriptures seriously when they advise us to take Satan seriously for his schemes? Have you ever thought and stopped and stepped back to process are the things I've come to believe about God to be the truth that aren't actually true? What if we've already been deceived? This is where the erasing, the unlearning has to happen before we relearn who it is that God indeed is and why he is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. Turn to Luke 4 now. Jesus faced the same types of deception the same strategies uh, from Satan, and it's a really helpful place for us uh, to learn. Luke chapter 4, I actually mean that, that's what we're going to read, Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 1, and here's the context. Uh, Jesus has just begun to start his mission of, of saving the world. He's just been baptized in the Jordan uh, by John the Baptist, and as he was baptized, the Spirit came upon him, and the Father spoke and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit leads him to be tempted in the desert. Uh, as we read this, notice this too, it might sound familiar uh, with Genesis 3. If you're not familiar with Genesis 3, I highly recommend going to, to read it after. There's a parallel going on here between the temptation of Adam, the first man in the Garden of Eden, and then the temptation of Jesus in a desert, who's the second. He's starting over for uh, the sake of humanity. So keep that in mind as we read this, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Those are three important words. He was hungry means he was needy. If you ever recognized that before, Jesus fully embraced his humanity. In these 40 days, he did not use his divinity to feed himself and to provide in a different way. He endured the good and the bad of humanity so that we could know that he had gone before us. He was needy in this moment, and that is when Satan shows up. He was hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. What does Satan cause him to question? His relationship and standing with the Father. He causes him to question the love of the Father. In his book, uh, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer comments on this, and I think it's, it's so powerful. He says this, the devil starts in on Jesus the same way he did on Eve, by planting doubts in Jesus' mind about his identity as the object of God's love. If you are the son of God. And the story literally right before, God said to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. For the Reddit reader, it's the snake's update of did God really say? Satan's strategy hasn't changed since the garden because it hadn't needed to change. It's effective. I'll continue to read. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. 
If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Now he's questioning whether or not the Father can provide. The Father had a vision that Jesus will be king on earth. That was the plan, and Satan's going, can God really? First it was, did God really save relationally? Now he goes, can God really? Is God actually capable? Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. If you are the Son of God, once again, does God actually love? Have God prove it. How can you be sure? Make sure God actually loves you. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, notice this, now Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. Just because somebody starts quoting the scriptures to you or even knows the Bible really well, that does not mean that it is of God. Satan often throws the scriptures around. Matter of fact, anytime people kind of flippantly and maybe even arrogantly start throwing the scriptures around, I would really be very hesitant to listen at all. There's very few times. Jesus does it. He quotes the scriptures very harshly in some moments, but it's always to religious leaders misportraying who God is. If someone else starts to do that in your life, I'd have a whole lot of questions if it's not centered in, rooted in humility. Here's how Satan quotes the scriptures. He says, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, Do not test the Lord your God. Verse 13 is really important. After the devil had finished every temptation, uh, he left Jesus until an opportune time. That word opportune is really significant. What it means is two things. One, Satan is intentional. And two, Satan is strategic. He doesn't willy-nilly just float around and go, oh, this seems like a good person to, uh, to tempt. I'm going to give this a shot right now. He doesn't do that. He waited until two things happened. Jesus was hungry. He was needy. And Jesus was isolated and alone. That one's really significant. Uh, Comer in the, the same book says this. He says, the devil is just as aware of our need for community as we are, if not more so. And he uses that awareness to gain the upper hand in the fight, doing all he can to cut us off from community with God's people and from God himself. His tactic is the same basic formula on repeat. Isolate, then lie. Isolate, then lie. That is the opportune moment. Notice Eve was tempted first without Adam. Jesus was alone and hungry. Satan is not an idiot. He's pretty smart. He's pretty good at what he does. Catch this. Satan's lies will always present an angle of how God's love is insufficient. Every single time, Satan's lie will present an angle of how God's love is somehow insufficient. Probably most often the way that's going to happen is by convincing you that you need to do something to earn God's love, which is counter to the gospel. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. We need to have awareness that Satan is strategically and intentionally trying to cause us to attribute things to God 
that are not actually true of who he is. Again, this is where the erasing, the unlearning before the relearning takes place. Some of you like having a tangible, practical takeaway from our our time. And so if that's you, here's one option. If community is so significant, so much so that Satan's plan is isolation, uh, one of the ways that we can have a defense against Satan is to avoid long bouts with isolation. One of the things we can do to test whether or not we have an accurate understanding of who God is is to share how we are understanding God with others. Because the Spirit will work within each of us who are followers of Jesus to bring unity and the light, the truth for us. To, to put it into some steps, you can do it this way. Write out what you feel to be true about God. Feel in this sentence is really, really important. Do not write out what you learned in a class. Do not quote the scriptures. Do not write something you've learned or know to be true of God. That would be totally uh, defeating the purpose. The, the word feel is very key. You have to write what you feel to be true of God. If I feel that somebody is dangerous, I'm going to either become defensive or run away or come up with a strategy of how to relate to them. That's my feeling, not necessarily what I know to be true. What we feel about God is going to dictate how we behave with God, how we relate to him. And so that leads us to the second thing. Write what each of those feelings, ways of relating to God, declares is an attribute of God. So what I feel is going to lead to what I believe to be true of him. It doesn't have to be complicated or use fancy theological language. If I feel that God is dangerous, if I I feel afraid, if I feel nervous, if I feel like, ah, shame, or he might want me to go do this before I come to him, that's dictating something to be true in my mind about who God is. Number three, then, share it with someone else and hear their thoughts. By that, I mean someone who is a part of the church, part of our family, someone who's also in relationship with uh, God. Are they in agreement? Is it in alignment alignment with what the scriptures portray to be true about God? Or does it have more to do with your personal history and experiences? From, again, on this scale, either trauma that's very real or the simplicity of familial and cultural values. Because anywhere on that scale can have great implications to what we begin to believe is true and then attribute to God that isn't actually true. Today, the, the goal is pretty simple. Like I said, just awareness. Recognize Satan is actively seeking to harm by actively seeking to distort and twist and morph what you believe to be true about God. Question, what experiences, what in your life could be misshaping your understanding of who God is. But then I said there was three things. The third is that we invite the Spirit to show us, to allow us to experience the Father for who He truly is. That's the good news. That's the gospel part. We don't have to do it all. We don't have to do the erasing. We just have awareness and say, Spirit, please lead. And the Spirit will say, yes. I want to close our time here in just a moment reading uh, Romans 8. 
uh, beginning in verse 12. It's this incredible encouragement from Paul uh, about the fact that the Spirit will lead us in this. I'll read uh, Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. That we are God's children. Uh, Imagine with me for for just a moment that there's a, a little boy named Jimmy who's in third grade. And since kindergarten, Jimmy's had this friend named Jack, and they've been friends, they've known each other, and Jack has never seen Jimmy's father pick him up from school. And so somehow over the the course of these four years, Jack has made these observations about Jimmy and his family, and so nonchalantly, one day he throws out this fact, why does your dad never pick you up from school? And somehow... In this weird way, this little seed is planted that somehow Jimmy's dad doesn't care all that much. Somehow a little seed is planted that Jimmy's dad doesn't have time for him. Somehow a little seed is planted that one day when Jimmy needs his dad, his dad won't be there. Or for a moment, imagine there's a woman named Natalie who's married to Dean. And from the the get-go, Natalie's parents never really liked Dean. She's got a couple friends from high school who never approved either. And Dean's really busy and and really successful. He's made a lot of money and provided comfortably for the family. But one day, her parents and her high school friends start to question, why is Dean never around? What is it in him that drives him to work so hard? And a seed is planted where she starts to question his love and commitment. I can't fathom a situation where when my kids go to school... Or my wife is living life and somebody comes to her or my children and is actively seeking to change their concept of my love for them. Can you imagine that? Imagine for for just a moment, picture whoever it is that you love the most in life. What if day after day after day, somebody was coming up to them and they were intentionally, strategically trying to deceive them about your love for them all behind your back? That'd probably make you pretty furious. Here's some good news. That makes God furious. And so he gives us his spirit to remind us of the truth of who he actually is. Again, in Romans 12, all those led by God's spirit are God's children. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we we may also be glorified with him. I'm going to skip to verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. Now this list continues. I want you to note something. The next part of this list lists real things, real adversaries and opponents really working to destroy our relationship with the Father. But there's a a deeper, beautiful truth written in verse 38. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to continue to worship now, and I often say the only proper application of any sermon is actually coming to the table to take communion. It's not about words I say or anyone else teaches. It's not about you and going, you going to do something better or trying harder. It's about the work of Jesus. And there's this beautiful power in communion. Communion acknowledges the power of Satan and sin and death. When we look at the, the bread... And the cup, we're reminded of the body and blood that Jesus gave up for us. And there were real powers that led to that happening. Hear that. Real powers that are still seeking to deceive us into having a misunderstanding about who God is and how he actually loves. The good news, though, as we take this communion is we remember that sin could not hold Jesus down. Remember that disease and sickness and death could not hold Jesus down. And Satan, though he is wise and powerful, could not hold Jesus down. So we're going to continue to worship this morning both in song, but also by taking communion. Remembering that by the power of the Spirit who is with us, we are united to Jesus himself. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives within us. Feel free during this next song as we sing and proclaim these truths. Uh, to come and take communion, to know that Jesus is with you and for you. We'll continue to seek the Spirit to erase the parts of God that are not true and replace them uh, with the perfect, loving, powerful, and capable God that is with and for us. Let's continue to worship Him together now. things that we've tied to God that are not who he is. Um, I know for so many of us, um, church wounds can run deep. Um, Family wounds can run deep. How the love of God has been skewed as conditional, as as a place or a space where we're only loved if we do better and work harder. And the reality is, is we love because he first loved us. I mean, We are nothing without him. 
In the Psalms, I believe Psalm 62, it says we're nothing but a breath without him. We're but a vapor of wind. And so this journey of what it means to uh, go through the process of, in some ways, releasing or, or laying down, letting go, allowing the Holy Spirit to begin to work, move, navigate, uh, almost surgically begin to cut away the things that are not true about who God is so that we can begin to be immersed, surrounded by, covered in who he truly is. Um, how important, how beautiful, how incredible that we serve a God that loves us. And even when we've spewed poisons, even when we've spoken um, inaccurately about who he is, he is still faithful. He can take it. He can handle it. Uh, he stands there in the midst of those those things and still um, beckons us in, calls us in. So, wow. Anyway, thanks for joining us this morning. So glad you were able to tune in. Um, hope this was impactful for you. If this is your first time joining us, uh, my name is Nate Haas. I'm one of the team members here at Restoration Church. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And um, yeah, like we say always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.